From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Silent ischemia, a so-called silent heart attack. It can be mistaken for indigestion or a bout of the flu. And while the symptoms may not be typical, a silent heart attack still causes real damage to the heart muscle. We'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Because people are waiting for that Hollywood heart attack where they clutch their chest, have terrible pain, get sweaty get pale and fall on the ground. And that is actually the minority, whether you're a man or a woman. Also on the program, we'll hear about the Lone Star Tick, whose bite can cause an allergy to meat. And we'll discuss new research showing a connection between swaddling and sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Believe it or not, a heart attack doesn't always have symptoms like pain in your chest or shortness of breath. In fact, it's possible to have a heart attack and not even know it. Severe ischemia, now that word ischemia, that's a doctor word, but it means reduced blood flow and preventing your heart, in this case, from getting enough oxygen. But silent ischemia, commonly referred to as a silent heart attack, may be mistaken for indigestion or about with a flu. According to the American Heart Association, upwards of 45% of all heart attacks are silent. And while there may be minimal symptoms, silent heart attacks still cause damage to the heart muscle. Here to talk about silent heart attacks is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Sharon Hayes. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hayes. Great to be here. Well, it's sort of interesting, isn't it, that you can have a heart attack and not know it? So we've known about silent ischemia and silent heart attacks for a long time. This more recent study, though, showed that it may be more common than we even thought. I like to tell people, my patients, though, that these are not all silent. Many of these people, if you say, oh, I see on your electrocardiogram it's changed from last year, it looks like you may have had a heart attack and we confirm it, they sometimes will recall when they were quite ill. Mm-hmm. And so I use the term a lot unrecognized as opposed to silent because it wasn't. They said, I had this, I thought I had really bad heartburn. I went to bed for a couple of days. Well, they were just fortunate they lived through their heart attack at home in bed. So some, in fact, probably are silent. But others are unrecognized. So I think one of the take-home messages is continuing to talk about what the symptoms of a heart attack are because people are waiting for that Hollywood heart attack where they clutch their chest, have terrible pain, get sweaty, get pale and fall on the ground. And that is actually the minority, whether you're a man or a woman. Yeah, I, when I first heard this, I thought, oh, this must be what women have because you always, that's what you always hear is that women have the more non-traditional Hollywood heart attack, but men can have it too. In fact, in this particular study, men were more likely to have both a, a diagnosed heart attack as well as a silent heart attack compared to women. So it sounds like we better review the symptoms again. I think that as much as we have, that is always an opportunity. So I think the important thing about heart attack symptoms is it often isn't sudden. And in fact, the symptoms can wax and wane. They can get better and get worse. And although the number one symptom of heart attack is chest pain, pressure, it may not be the most prominent one. So somebody may feel mainly nauseated or mainly short of breath or get sweaty, most, about 70% will have some chest symptom, but they won't call it pain. So we like to talk about 
chest discomfort, pain, pressure that may radiate to the jaw, down the arms, in between the shoulder blades. Nausea is common um, and actually a little more common in women than men. Shortness of breath that's associated. Getting into a, a cold sweat feeling of impending doom, and that just is what it is, as you feel really like you're going to die, um, feeling lightheaded, having palpitations, heart racing. So remember that, and and also extreme fatigue. I always throw that one in because people <laughs> say, well, I'm always fatigued. I'm always tired. We, we'd have 80% of our population in uh, the emergency department. But Talking to patients who've had these symptoms, I mean, they know this is something different. And if they get heartburn, they take their antacid and it doesn't get better. And that's the message is if you have these, particularly in combination, and you've not had it before, the next step is you dial 911. You don't call your doctor. You don't ask your spouse or your neighbor to drive you to the hospital. You get help right away. Explain that impending doom one a little bit more because if you've never had that you I, that's so, kind of so a strange it, so many people will say i thought i was going to die i my my it, my life flashed in front of me i felt so sick uh, that because uh, you're, that's what your brain does yes. your brain says yeah. something's not right this yep. is it and ignoring that symptom can be deadly now you can tell um on an ekg most of the time that someone has in fact had a silent heart attack well, so this particular study was, um, it, it used um, a change in Q waves, which is one of the waves on the ECG. And that's one way, that a criteria, um, it has to be confirmed in a real life person. If, if you came in and your ECG had changed from last year, um, we would do some additional tests like an echocardiogram to look at the heart pumping function to see if we could also see it. The study that used this is imperfect in that it only used EKG. Um, EKG will not necessarily detect a milder, um, a small heart attack. So we figure that in this study, there may have been a few that were overcounted, but probably a lot were undercounted. So we, we take it at face value in this study. But the problem is, I assume that if you have had a, a heart attack, you have had death of some of the, of the yes, heart muscle. By definition. But um, we have such... Uh, sensitive criteria to um, detect death of even a few heart muscle cells that would never show up on an electrocardiogram. And so the, the, in, in this particular study, these were people who had a, probably a fairly significant heart attack that was unrecognized or silent. Is this somewhat akin to a, a transient ischemia transient ischemic attack or a mini stroke and this is kind of a mini heart attack and you're a setup for a bigger one? No, actually, this is probably more like a real stroke um, okay. in in the way that they are defining it because mm-hmm. um, this uh, Q wave, and if you remember back, we don't actually use the term Q wave myocardial infarction or heart attack anymore. That's when you and I were <laughs> starting practice, they did. But that was to imply that there was actually damage all the way through the heart muscle, so not transient. If you discover this on an EKG, uh, and the patient did or did not uh, know or remember about it, what do you do? So we confirm it, and we assess that patient's uh, cardiac risk factors. We check what their heart pumping function is. Um, if we confirm it, then we do the full court press if they're not already being uh, taken care of in looking at are they smoking, are they diabetic, uh, do they have undetected high cholesterol or high blood pressure, 
um, and then get them on the appropriate medications that we would put on for anybody who'd had a heart attack. And then often we will recommend that we look at their heart arteries um, with a coronary angiogram or a CT angiogram. And then we set them up with some good follow-up. So all of a sudden, that patient who comes in and they just had their routine ECG, they're now a heart patient. Uh, I'm thinking about something that you said earlier with the number of people that you look at their ECG um, and they and you say, it looks like you've had a heart attack. And they no, 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 it looks like you have. Oh, well, there was that time. Mm-hmm. What is it? You mentioned that, you know, the guy goes to bed and said, I was just sick for a couple of days. Is it that they feel like they think they had the flu or do they are they nauseated? What is that? Usually. So often they think they're either really tired, they had the stomach flu or uh, a, a little pneumonia, or they just felt unwell. But, and they may have made, and some, that's when some of those other symptoms other than chest pain may be the main symptom. So they, but they think back and they think, gosh, I never felt that way before or since. Now that you say it. Yeah, now that mm-hmm. you say it. Mm-hmm. But these people are set up for more trouble, right? That's exactly true. So remember, whether you have a TIA or a brain, a little brain um, uh, mini stroke, mini huh? stroke, or a heart attack, um, that just means that the artery to the brain or the heart attack um, has plaque in it and is capable of blocking of a blockage. That is a sign that you've got blockages all over your body. And so going in and doing a bypass or a stent may help open that artery, but it doesn't prevent the progression of the underlying problem. That's where lifestyle, certain medications like the statins can. And so that's why the recognition of these folks is so important. All right. We're talking about silent heart attacks with cardiologist Dr. Sharon Hayes, the Mayo Clinic. We need to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, women are more likely than men to die from a silent heart attack. I think we might already know that. (laughs) You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with cardiologist Dr. Sharon Hayes. She's an expert on silent heart attacks and the heart in general. Well, let's start off with myth or matter of fact. Yeah, women are more likely than men to die from a silent heart attack. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, a woman who has had a silent heart attack may be a little more likely to die subsequently related to having had that. But silent, by definition, we might not have. That was a pretty, if she died from the silent heart attack, it wasn't silent by definition. So heart disease, still the number one killer of both men and women in this country. And a lot of it is related to lifestyle. So let's talk about risk factors. And you tell us what we need to do to not have one of these heart attacks. Silent or otherwise. (laughs) Silent or otherwise, that's right. And I think I like to frame this for people who don't think they're at risk for heart disease is pretty much everything that we do to improve or lower your risk of having a heart attack lowers your risk of lots of other things, including cancer, and helps you live better longer. Diabetes, obesity. Yes, so all of these things. But um, I always start with the, the biggie because it's the one thing that people can control, although it's difficult to, is if you're exposed to tobacco or smoke, That's the first one. It's the most powerful preventable risk factor. If you are a diabetic or at risk for diabetes, um, uh, one, control your diabetes and get good care and and take care of yourself. But also you can prevent diabetes, too, by eating right and uh, maintaining a normal weight. The next thing I talk about is really physical activity. I don't talk about exercise because that's a four-letter word. Um, (laughs) 
but being more active will protect your bones, will protect you from cancer, and it will help you maintain a healthy weight and will reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. And just walking. Just walking. Um, it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to. It, it needs to be a little bit more than a stroll. So, you know, brisk walking, um, more vigorous is more beneficial. So, yes. And then knowing your numbers. So that's the other part of it is knowing what your blood pressure is and if it's in range. Mm-hmm. So hypertension or high blood pressure is um, identified as greater than 140 systolic over 90 diastolic, upper and lower. But ideal is less than 120 over 80. So are you in that range and talking to your doctor about what you can do to get there? Same with cholesterol. So total cholesterol, LDL or lousy, bad cholesterol, ideally should be less than 100. HDL, healthy uh, cholesterol, should be greater than 50 or 60, depending on male or female. And also paying attention to triglycerides, which is a fat in the blood that can be increased. First of all, thank you for giving me the lousy cholesterol and the healthy cholesterol because I've never been able to remember which one is the good one and which one is the bad one. Secondly, um, I just think it's curious that you're going through this list and then probably one of the very first things that happens when somebody is determined that they need to pay attention to their heart is they start on a medication. And you're not even, you're through four yet and you haven't even gotten to that yet. You're right, because Mm -hmm. we're starting with somebody who wants to prevent one, Mm -hmm. and the first step is preventing risk factors. So in the past, we started about, we talked about primary prevention, which is preventing a heart attack, and secondary prevention is preventing a second heart attack. We're talking more and more these days about primordial prevention. So that's preventing the risk factor in the first place, preventing obesity, preventing diabetes, preventing high blood pressure. And we've got studies that can show that there are things with your lifestyle that you can do. Uh, Getting back to what you said, it's a lifestyle issue, is you can prevent many of these things. The drugs are reserved for when lifestyle doesn't work. And when you talk about drugs, are you mainly talking about cholesterol-lowering drugs? Cholesterol and blood pressure-lowering medications are probably the the most powerful um, things that we have uh, to reduce the risk, and particularly for that secondary prevention. So if we get back to um, the folks who may have already had a heart attack, silent or not, um, statins are pretty much indicated in all of those individuals because the evidence is so powerful that that will lower their risk. Aspirin is also used in that population. So uh, cholesterol, there's some good things about cholesterol, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that are on statins. I know there are people on statins who have what we would call a normal cholesterol. Can you get your cholesterol too low? It doesn't appear that you can, actually. Um, uh, I think that if you're on a high dose of a statin, sometimes you're more likely to get um, side effects from the medication. But if we look at the average cholesterol level in uh, an American versus a Japanese uh, person, it's about 100 points difference, and they get along just fine. Um, and and so uh, we don't really, we don't need a lot of cholesterol past the age of two, dietary or otherwise, to keep our brain functioning and do the other, those other things. So uh, statins, they're all different kinds of statins. What are, the, what are the major side effects? I know the ones that we see in orthopedics are muscle aches and yeah. pains. They come in and they think they have arthritis, and it turns out you ask them if they're on a statin, and, and they, they they surely are. So I know that's one of the, yeah. the and that's the common most common is, is muscle aching, which um, in the 
in the clinical trials, it was only like 1%, but in real life, it's probably 2 to 5%, which is still a low number, but you think about the number of people who are on statins. So, um, but we can get around that, uh, and a lot of folks by changing the dosing, changing which statin they're on, or even now there's some new medications that may help us in those people who can't tolerate statins at all. Do you think there will come a time when heart disease is not the number one killer of both men and women in this country? Um, yes, and I think it will be in my lifetime. You do? I do. Well, that's sort um, of exciting. I think that the uh, progress that we have, I say collectively we, not the doctors, but people uh, quitting smoking, a lot of public health efforts, um, the rates of heart disease deaths have been going down steadily and pretty steeply for um, uh, three decades. And I think that um, uh, cancer is, the, there's more to it to try to get on top of it. So we are looking not to be number one. Are, I was just going to say, you are walking the walk and talking the talk, because you've got <laughs> your American Heart Association little red dress pin on, which is during Heart Month in February. Are are we starting to balance out now that women are starting to hear the message that you can have a heart attack, you can have heart disease, it's not just a guy's problem? Um, not enough, but much more so. And I will say that it was not publicized a lot, but in the annual heart AHA statistics that came out in the just after the first of the year, this was the first year since 1984 that women did not die more frequently of cardiovascular disease than men. So, um, and that was 2013 data, and it was almost equal. So, but we have been, women have been dying at greater numbers of cardiovascular disease in every year until 2013. Well, that's pretty exciting. That's it great is. news. That, I mean, it's terrible that people are still having this, but it's good that women are understanding this can be me too. Yes. All right. Good to remember the risk factors. Tobacco, shouldn't smoke, not good for you. Diabetes, physical inactivity, and you know, you need to know your numbers, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and your triglycerides. Keep those all under control. Live right, and you can avoid all this, huh? Uh, you got to die of something. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be <laughs> once we get everything cured. That's right. It might be at 100. Dr. Sharon Hayes, cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll find out more about the Lone Star Tick, whose bite can cause an allergy to meat. No. And later on in the program, we'll learn how swaddling can increase the risk of SIDS, or sudden infant death syndrome. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer, or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send an email to Mayo Clinic Radio at at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Let's talk about emotional eating. Sometimes the strongest food cravings hit when you're at your weakest point emotionally. You may turn to food for comfort, consciously or unconsciously, when facing a difficult problem or even feeling bored. Emotional eating can sabotage your weight loss efforts. It often leads to eating too much, especially too much of a high-calorie sweet and fatty food. People do it to soothe negative feelings such as anxiety, anger, fear, boredom, sadness, and loneliness. But you can take steps to regain control of your eating habits and get back on track. So try these tips. Keep a food diary. De-stress with meditation or deep breathing. Have a hunger reality check. Are you hungry physically or emotionally? 
fight boredom. Instead of snacking, substitute a healthier behavior such as walking a pet or listening to music, and take away temptation. Don't keep hard to resist foods in your home, and if you can't control it, talk to your healthcare professional. And now let's talk about a sure way to reduce stress and get some balance in your life. Yoga. It helps with balance and strength and flexibility, which really all of us need. Mind and body instructor Colleen Pelkey says yoga may also reduce stress, lower blood pressure, lower your heart rate, and can reduce the inflammation in our bodies. It helps with digestion. Just gets everything moving. Through poses and meditation, yoga helps you focus on your body, breathing, and relaxing, so you can tune out the demands of our busy world and find balance. Anybody can benefit from yoga, even people with diseases such as cancer and diabetes. So talk to your healthcare provider before you start. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. An aggressive tick, known as the Lone Star Tick, is the culprit in an increasing number of meat allergy cases, believe it or not, in both children and adults. So here's the connection. People have an allergic reaction to meat after they've been bitten by a tick. Sounds like a science fiction movie. Well, the problem used to be only in the southern part of the U.S., but now it's spread to the northern and western parts of the country. Here to help us understand how a tick can cause an allergy to meat is Mayo Clinic parasitologist Dr. Bobby Britt. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Britt. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dr. Britt, nice to see you. So this is pretty strange. You get a tick bite and you become allergic to meat. Can you explain this to all of us? Uh, Well, from what we understand, and there's still a lot of things we don't fully know, the tick, when it bites, injects something into the body that stimulates that person's immune response to develop an allergy against a certain type of sugar. And the sugar is called galactose alpha-1,3 galactose, but we just call it alpha-gal for short because that's way too long to say. Alpha-gal. Alpha-gal. It's easier. And alpha-gal is found on a whole number of different mammalian meats. So that includes uh, beef, pork, venison, uh, mutton. It doesn't include birds, so it doesn't include uh, duck or chicken, and it doesn't include fish. Boy, How in the w- being from Iowa, meat and potatoes guy, I don't want to get bitten by this day. How in the world did anybody ever connect the fact that this tick bite was making them allergic to meat? It was really just doing an epidemiologic investigation where you realize that the people that are showing up with these weird allergies had a previous history of exposure to ticks specifically the Lone Star Tick, and often they could remember getting a bite, and the bite they would remember would be really kind of painful and itchy for about two weeks. Strange. But it's, it is tricky because it takes several hours after you eat meat to have the allergic reaction. So that confounded people for a while, too. You'd eat a nice dinner, and then you'd wake up at 2 in the morning with mouth swelling and trouble breathing. So you'd get the tick bite, and then how much time would pass before you would develop the allergy? A couple of months. So that is a real stretch Mm -hmm. to pull that together. I know. Wow. Unbelievable. So uh, are those the primary symptoms, swelling in your mouth and difficulty breathing? Well, it's allergic reactions. So it could be something as as simple as hives or uh, having your lips swell up. But, of course, when your mouth starts getting involved, your tongue could swell up, your airways could swell up, so you could have trouble breathing, or you could go into full-blown anaphylactic shock. Really? So it could be quite serious. And does it ever abate over time, or is this this you're stuck with it for life? The good news is it does tend to go away over time. And they've actually found that if people get bitten again, then the allergy will pick back up. So once you've been bitten, 
yeah, don't despair. You might be able to eat meat again, but make sure you don't get bitten by another tick. Okay, now this show is heard <laughs> all around the country, so the parts of the country in the Southwest that have been dealing with it already know, but uh, have we got, has it moved into the Midwest also? Yes, so you can find it throughout the South and the East. So it goes from Texas, that would be the westernmost border, mm-hmm. all the way up to Wisconsin. It doesn't look like it's established in Minnesota yet, but we find a few of them every year, probably brought up on deer. Um, and then it goes all the way over to the East Coast up to Maine. Wow, interesting. This is only this particular kind of tick. Right, right? the Lone Star Tick, known oh. as Amblyoma Americanum. Of course she yep. knows the name of that. And what does the yes. Lone Star Tick look like? Well, it has this big yellow dot on its back, and that's the the Lone Star. Okay. It's only the female that has the big dot on it. And is it a larger kind of a tick, like what we know yes. as ticks? It's larger in the sense that you'd be able to see it a little okay. more easily than, say, the black-legged or deer tick, which is on the smaller side. Are these people who have uh, maybe not ever had an allergic or a reaction or asthma previously? Yeah, or? absolutely. These are not people that seem to be prone to allergies, uh, so they don't have like childhood asthma. Well, they actually discovered it when they were using a chemotherapy drug for people with head and neck cancer, and um, that also had alpha-gal moieties or sugars in it. And then they, yeah, I don't know how they put it all together. I just wow. love Very researchers, Very clever though. investigation, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, since you're here and we mentioned the deer tick with the black-legged tick, that, yep. is, the, that is the smaller tick right. that everyone needs to look out for. And that's the one that gives us Lyme disease. Yes, so that one's quite serious as well. You can get Lyme disease through the bite. You can get anaplasmosis, babesiosis. So that, what was that last one? Uh, babesiosis. <laughs> I don't know. It's it sounds a, bad. It's a parasite that lives inside your red blood cells. You don't uh, want any of these. You know, so essentially, you just want to protect yourself from ticks wherever you are. That's the important part. Right. Because when it comes to, well, Lyme disease, for instance, every, the patients can present that in so many different ways, and it makes yep. it hard to pin down that you even have Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. That can be tricky. Some of these other diseases just uh, cause you to have fevers, which is very nonspecific. Could be a virus, could be anaplasmosis, mm-hmm. and some of them are potentially fatal. Yeah, and the main thing is to keep that deer tick away from from you. So let's talk about how we do that. Right. Well, you want it off your skin. So you don't want any exposed skin that the tick is going to want to latch onto and bite. So you could do that, first of all, by wearing long sleeve uh, shirts, tuck your pants into your socks. Now, I know in the summertime, that's always not very (laughs) nice to have to go outside like that. No, yeah, you know, (laughs) you have to start a new fashion trend. But uh, (laughs) so if you do have exposed skin, you really should be wearing uh, an insect repellent. So something like DEET. Okay. You could also spray certain types of uh, repellents on your clothing. So if you don't like putting something on your skin, you can put it on the clothing as well. I think I would recommend doing both. Mm-hmm. And then when you're outdoors, try to stay away from the areas where ticks will be. So if you're going to walk down that beautiful path, hiking on the trail, stay away from the edges where the tall grasses are because that's where the ticks will be looking for hosts to grab on and bite. And you said, I love that you've got the, the mind of the researcher. You said you recently did a drag through some grass yes. and you found some. Dragging and for so ticks, yeah. Dragging I, for ticks. I want to offer that to my kids is something to do for fun, <laughs> like they can do their own little research. How do you drag for ticks to see if there are yeah. black ticks in that area? It, you know, it's really simple. You basically take a uh, white uh, sheet. Uh, we use flannel because mm-hmm. it's a little fuzzier, helps them uh, stick, stick on. And it's just this flag that is a little bit, it's about the size of two pillowcases. Okay. And you hook it onto a wooden stick 
tie some rope on it, you drag it behind you as you walk through the woods, and then you just pick it up from time to time and look to see what's stuck. Dragon for ticks. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like so what do we do today? Let's go dragon for dragon ticks. Dragon for ticks. Yeah. And it also scares people into putting that uh, that DEET spray on so that yes. they go, oh my gosh, there are some ticks out there. Mm-hmm. And how do you remove one if you've got one? If you get a tick on you, yeah, don't panic. Just Remove it as fast as you can. And so there's the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. <laughs> so the right way to do it is just to take tweezers or if you have fine-tipped forceps or you could buy those fine-tipped tweezers. Mm-hmm. Just grasp as close as you can to the bottom of the tick right near the skin and just pull it slowly out straight up. What you don't want to do, um, these are some of some folk remedies mm-hmm. people have used, don't apply heat to it, like with a lighter, mm-hmm. that's a bad idea. Might cause it to regurgitate its gut contents mm. into the bite site, which increases really your risk for good. disease. Don't put nail polish remover or nail polish on it. You just want the tick off of you as fast as possible, and the best way to do that is forceps. And the thing I learned the last time that you were here is that then put it in a baggie in the ref- in the freezer. Yeah, you can put it in a baggie, especially if you're in an area where you're worried about Lyme disease, and if the tick looks like it's swollen or engorged, mm-hmm. that means that it's been on you for a while. So then if you start to feel ill, you can go to your physician and bring the tick. Get it tested mm-hmm. and then you'll know for sure. Right. It's a great idea because you don't want a bad case of babesiosis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody does. No. no. Uh, Dr. Bobby Pritt, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about research that shows a connection between swaddling and sudden infant death syndrome. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Oh, those tiny cries of your newborn baby. (laughs) You know, new parents are always looking for ways to soothe their infant. And one of those techniques is swaddling. Is it swaddling or swaddling? Swaddling. (laughs) Depends on what part of the country you're from. (laughs) So what is it? Well, it's wrapping your baby tightly in a blanket, and it mimics the coziness of the womb. But according to a report published in the journal Pediatrics, researchers found that babies who were swaddled were twice as likely to die from sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS, if they were laid on their stomachs or their sides. Gosh, I can't think of anything more tragic. Now, the likelihood of SIDS was low for those placed on their backs. Well, here to talk about swaddling and the risk of SIDS is Mayo Clinic neonatologist, Dr. Chris Colby. Welcome to the program, Dr. Colby. Good to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. So, swaddling is out of style? Well, it's an interesting history about how this um, has gained quite a bit of attention over the last few months. There was an article that was published in Pediatrics and picked up on national news outlets like the USA Today that got a lot of attention about is it still safe or a good idea to swaddle your baby. And what did they say? What was the, What's the conclusion? What do you say? Okay. So the backstory on it is SIDS has been something that, you know, is obviously very tragic and something that, you know, across the world different associations have tried to put the best knowledge together to figure out what the best sleep position and safe sleep patterns are for for babies. The American Academy of Pediatrics in 1991 uh, released their uh, recommendations about best practices to reduce SIDS, and the biggest intervention at that point was to make sure that your baby is put back to sleep. And those uh, recommendations had been in place for 20 years, And what we saw over that 20-year period was a significant reduction in SIDS-related deaths. 
So just the back to sleep meaning you lay the baby on the back instead mm-hmm. of on the su- on the stomach or the side or the side. Yeah. Okay. So the recommended sleep position is for babies to sleep on their back. And the um, so it seemed like we had made progress with decreasing the incidence of SIDS in the infant population, but yet there was still work to be done. What was being missed? And there were um, different ideas about what could be done besides just the back-to-sleep uh, intervention. And the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2011 came up with a broader definition of safe sleep patterns. And the sort of things that were included in those were obviously continue to put your baby back to sleep, but it's very important for your baby to sleep on a firm sleep mattress, not just put your baby, you know, to sleep on a pillow. Um, the whole idea of co-bedding got some attention too, that instead of, you know, just accepting that as normal for mom and dad to bring their newborn in the bed with them, uh, real recognition that the baby should have his or her own kind of spot to sleep in the same room as the mom and dad, but just not in the same bed as the mom and dad. Oh, so if they want to do that co-sleeping, it's best to have them in their little mattress beside your bed and not in your bed. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, Personal story, uh, these recommendations got uh, released before or after I had my first baby, and and we we brought our first baby home. And I was a resident at the time, and I was exhausted. <laughs> and it, it was very convenient and very easy to, to bring our baby into our, our bed and, and fall right mm-hmm. back asleep. But because I was a resident working quite a bit, bit of hours, there was one night where I woke up, and I was literally staring face-to-face with a newborn, and I asked myself, is this really safe to have my baby in our bed mm-hmm. with us? So the AAP rec- you know, recognized that, and, and part of the recommendations in 2005 was baby sleep next to mom and dad in their own Sleep, uh, you know, whether it be bassinet or bassinet, crib. sure. Yeah, they got to have their own bed. In other words, they have to have their own bed. Yep. Um, the other things that got included with these recommendations were to keep soft objects and loose bedding out of the crib. That seems fairly um, obvious. Um, avoid smoke exposure in the home. That's a huge risk factor for SIDS. Um, and avoid overheating the baby. But um, you know, perhaps. Uh, not particularly well embraced by certain industries, the whole idea of, you know, different sort of equipment that you can put in your bed or different kind of alarms that you can uh, purchase on Amazon or online to decrease the risk of SIDS, none of those have been shown to be the least bit effective and and aren't recommended at all. Yeah. And there's a huge industry out there to, you know, perhaps – capitalize on the fear that parents have. And if you just spend another couple hundred bucks, your baby will be uh, safer. Not true. Not true. So uh, tell me why wasn't it the the NIH who started this campaign of back to sleep, but they changed it. It, Now it's safe to sleep campaign. And is that because you've identified these other factors? Yeah. In addition to how the in what position the baby sleeps? That's exactly right. So you have the back to sleep as the kind of primary focus, but there are other behaviors that are important, too. And for new families who are out there wondering what the uh, best practices are, they can get online and go to healthychildren.org, and these are all laid out for them as far as what the optimal uh, safe sleep uh, behavior are. So healthychildren.org, is that sponsored by uh, the AAP, American yeah. Academy of Pediatri- Pediatrics? Yes. Say it again. What's the, what's the website? Healthychildren.org. Okay. And when it comes to swaddling, uh, I had one of my two loved that. Mm. It really seemed to be comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
probably I didn't associate it with sleeping. It was just when they were awake, it was mm-hmm. one of the things that helped to kind of comfort and calm them down. So what you're saying is the which it swaddling is mm-hmm. wrapping them all mm-hmm. a little tight like a little burrito. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the idea not to use that when they're sleeping. That's right. So, you know, as more investigation was done with what other risk factors are we potentially missing here that may be contributing to SIDS? There was a study that got published a couple months ago that looked at the role of swaddling and how that might contribute to SIDS. And what they did is they looked at, I think it was 286 different papers. Four of the papers were actually of high enough quality evidence to make any kind of recommendation uh, from. And what they saw was uh, an association with increasing risk of SIDS when the babies had been swaddled. Hmm. Interesting. Just, they were too tightly burritoed up. Yeah, they're t- swaddled t- up. Yeah, so it was interesting because we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it seemed like there was an association with swaddling and sleep positioning. So the babies who were at the highest risk were the babies who were swaddled and put to sleep uh, on their stomach. That was considered pretty dangerous um, uh, practice. But even the babies who were uh, on their back, following the back to sleep uh, recommendation, but tightly swaddled, there was an increased risk of SIDS which uh, suggested that there may be a component of wrapping your baby too tightly, increasing the risk of having that sort of an event. So tell me what happens. Um, I've never really quite understood. So basically the baby gets smothered, and and so something is interfering with their breathing, and they do not have the ability to move so they can breathe. Is that what happens? Yeah, so what the study showed was there was an increasing risk uh, the older the baby got. So the newborns who were tightly swaddled and placed on the back, the risk was not there at all. But as the babies continued to be swaddled and they got older in the first six months of age, that's when the risk actually increased, which led people to probably conclude that what was going on is the babies had been put to, you know, put back to sleep, tightly swaddled, but a four-month-old, five-month-old, six-month-old can flip over onto their onto their stomach, mm-hmm. and then if they're having difficulty breathing uh, because they're face down on the mattress, they may not have the ability to protect their airway, and that could be a you know dangerous situation for them. So mm-hmm. we the, we had talked before we got started that the bumpers in the crib, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was another thing when I had my kids. The first kid, oh, it was okay. By the time the second kid, nope, get the bumpers out yeah. of there. And so is it that that just creates a little pocket and they can't get enough air, or is it that they roll over and get wedged up against the bumper? Uh, perhaps both. Okay. Perhaps both. All right, SIDS uh, from one of the world's experts, uh, Dr. Chris Colby. So the important thing to remember is that as, uh, one of the contributing, the major contributing factor is sleep position, but there are some others that new parents ought to be aware of. Correct. All right, Dr. Chris Colby, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.